This is Aesthetics Bites, a series for Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Aesthetics Bites is made in association with the London Aesthetics Forum and made possible by a grant from the British Society of Aesthetics. Alongside the artist, there's the critic. There are critics and reviewers of dance, theatre, art, film and so on. But what is the role of the critic? And in particular, is part of the critic's role to evaluate works of art. Noel Carroll of the City University of New York thinks it is. Noel Carroll, welcome to Aesthetics Bites. Glad to be here. The topic we're going to focus on today is criticism. Why are you interested in criticism now? What's special about criticism? At present, there's a kind of crisis amongst critics. A recent poll by Columbia University registered skepticism about the process of making evaluation. I think of criticism as being essentially a matter of evaluation, whereas a number of practicing art critics today, in fact the majority, think of evaluation as the least important thing that they do. For them, the important thing they do is to explain the context of the work, the ideas in the work, to come up with interpretation of the work, but they don't feel that criticism is important. I, on the other hand, want to argue that criticism, though it of, of course it involves things like description and interpretation, is essentially a matter of evaluation. After all, if it were simply a matter of description and interpretation, there'd be no distinction between what the art historian or the cultural theorist does. What is unique about the critical enterprise is that it evaluates. When criticism is thought of primarily in descriptive terms, it's very often not clear to just plain art lovers what the point of it is. After all, human beings are evaluators by nature. Most people, when they respond to art, are first interested in what other people think of its quality. In a way, the predominance of description mystifies them because it seems to presuppose that there's something worthwhile to talk about, and that's what they want to know. How would you go about being a critic in your terms? What is it that a critic should be doing? Well, what a critic should do is to help the reader to appreciate the work of art, to find value in it. And I think that there is a a heuristic, a general procedure that critics follow. It has two parts. Works of art, first of all, have purposes, and second of all, they articulate or they advance or they embody or realize those purposes in means that are either adequate or appropriate to whatever the purpose is. So in a way, criticism is at least a two-step operation. One has to actually first identify the purpose of the work and then try and assess the means by which that purpose has been realized or not and determine whether the means are adequate or appropriate or fitting or suitable to the work. So Damien Hirst has this recent very notorious piece where he has an 18th century skull with the actual teeth of that skull and he's encrusted it in about 8,000 diamonds. Well, this is a piece, like many of his other pieces, like the famous piece with the shark and formaldehyde, this is a piece that's a memento mori, dedicated to making you think about death and specifically about how the riches of life 
the riches of the flesh are meaningless in the face of human mortality. So even though many people have complained about this work, in a way he has chosen means appropriate to the purpose of really compelling reflection on the relationship of mortality and earthly vanities or earthly wealth. Well, let's take that example of the Damien Hirst work, For the Love of God, the jewel-encrusted skull. Now, I've seen that, and not everybody who will read criticism of that work will have the benefit of having seen it, and it's quite remarkable. It moved me more than I expected it to, having seen the photographs before that. Now, couldn't criticism just be a neutral, phenomenological account of people's experiences? This is something interesting. It's quite interesting to know what it's like to engage with a unique work of art. Part of my motivation for wanting to actually reflect on the nature of criticism and emphasize its connection with evaluation has to do with the fact that, especially in the visual arts with minimalism, the notion that criticism was a phenomenological description was a very advanced one. Critics who thought that they were on the cutting edge of criticism were kind of amateur phenomenologists in the 60s. The name Merleau-Ponty had a great deal of cachet. Now, I want to argue that that isn't sufficient for criticism. One reason to say that is simply being a matter of description doesn't sufficiently differentiate criticism from other activities. But also, as I said earlier, I think if someone gets a a long phenomenological description, they'll want to know why. Why is it being described? Why is it important? Is it that everything that's unique deserves a phenomenological description? I think especially with this work, it's hard to avoid the why questions since uh, I believe it's been assessed at a value of $42 million and the ingredients themselves are worth so many millions of pounds, the why question would emerge. For what purpose was it done and what value does the purpose have? Certainly a number of people would be suspicious of a work like that and think that oh, it's just conspicuous consumption. It's just a matter of spending a lot of money. They would want to know what justifies it. Are there any good reasons for lavishing that that amount of money on it? Okay, let's turn then to the really difficult question, which is, what counts as adequacy in your assessment of criticism? What counts as a good ground for a positive critical evaluation? Well, the reasoning is, of course, essentially teleological. It's very important, of course, to identify the purpose of the work. It's easier to identify the means once one has some grasp of the purpose. Many people think that attributing a purpose to the work is either subjective or highly relativistic or perennially controversial. And I think that there are many ways of establishing the purpose that can be objective because there are facts of the matter that are connected to it. So one way you identify the purpose of the work is to try and find what category it belongs to. And the categories will have various purposes. So, for example, if you're reading a mystery novel, and by the second page, every reader thinks the butler did it, and at no point in the novel do you have any other suspects that are alive, then you have a bad novel, because you haven't designed it 
to realize the purpose of mystery, which is to hold the audience's curiosity. So one way that you establish the purpose of the work is by means of the category or the genre or the movement or the style it belongs to. It's very easy to get something in the wrong category. That's actually primarily the reason that most flawed evaluations are made, that people put things in the wrong category. You see this all the time with motion pictures, where this or that action film or romantic comedy is disparaged, and then you ask, well, what comparison class, what category are you thinking in, of it in? And somebody tells you, well, you know, I'm comparing it to Bergman films. Well, that's simply the wrong category. There are other ways of identifying the purpose. I mean, you look at both the art historical and the historical context of the work and see what kind of purposes are alive and abroad at that time. And, of course, you can be right or wrong about that. Uh, you can think something might have a certain kind of aim that would be Im- historically implausible for the work. And, of course, there's also the intention of the artist. Maybe interviews, statements, manifestos the artists have made. The artist's entire oeuvre, for example, you compare it to see what purposes he or she has pursued up to that point. These things, the category, the context, and the intention, all these things involve matter of facts that can be corrected. And insofar as they involve matter of facts, you can have debates that can be resolved about the purposes of the work. So is it the job of the critic also to judge the categories against each other? So is a literary novel a superior category to the mystery novel? There may be some situations where one needs to do that. Most of the time, I think it's not necessary to be comparing categories. If you're an opera critic, there doesn't seem to be much cause for you to declare operas as a category to be superior to cartoons. There may be some occasions where it becomes necessary to make course, categorical judgments, but I, I think that those are fewer and far between. I also would want to say that in many cases where the cultural heft of the categories are, are wide apart, there will be convergence or consensus on certain kinds of judgments so that certain cartoon series like Peanuts belong to a category different than the Sistine Chapel, which offers itself as a kind of encyclopedia of an entire culture. But as the categories maybe are less clearly far apart from each other, there will probably be more controversy. The other kind of judgment that you make about the purpose of the work, of course, is whether or not the work is worth the effort. And going back to the Damien Hirst example, I suspect some people would want to ask whether the realizing his purpose was worth investing £14 million worth of diamonds. There's a kind of orthodoxy which says that value judgments are somehow infradig. You shouldn't make value judgments at all in the area of the arts. It's somehow a crude approach to the arts. Why do you think that's got going? On the one hand, we have people who believe that there's no disputing matters of taste. I may not know what art is, but I I know what I like. Then on the other hand, there is the view that making judgments is in some way 
inimical to the activity of the arts. We're going to impede our artistic invention and exploration if we air too much criticism. I think it's wrong to think that criticism will impede the well-being of art. First of all, because in a way I think positive criticism that is saying what is valuable, why the artist's choice are adequate to the work, is in a way more important than negative criticism. But even negative criticism can be useful. And in any case, evaluation is part of the human condition and really the philosophical task is to figure out how the evaluation should be conducted in a way that's both objective and productive. It seems to follow from your treatment of criticism that it would be possible to judge a work successful, that's achieved its purpose, and yet you personally dislike it. That's exactly right. There are two different concepts of appreciation abroad, and there's one I favor and one I distrust. The one notion of appreciation is appreciation as liking. I appreciate what you've done with your garden means I I like what you've done with your garden. The other sort of appreciation, I think, is more connected to the origin of the word. I call it appreciation as sizing up. This is what a, a general or a chess master does when they offer an appreciation of a battle or, or a chess game. The chess master may be offering an appreciation of a game he's just lost. He might not like it, but he's able to size up what the various moves and counter moves were and how they contributed to the effect. Though the appreciation is liking is probably more commonly used, this appreciation is sizing up is not unknown to us when we take an appreciation of poetry course or an appreciation of music course what we're taught is the various forms and conventions of say music and music 101 what a sonata form is how it's organized what point it makes how the various uh, units in it contribute to its overall effect at the end of the term you're not given an exam where you're given a list of pieces of music and you're asked which ones you liked and how much or which ones you disliked. You're asked maybe to offer an analysis of something like Schoenberg's Moses and Aaron. You'll get an A in the course if you're able to analyze it, and the person who gets an A in the course may actually even wind up disliking it. There is no necessary connection between liking and understanding. You've been a critic of a number of art forms, including film, dance and theatre. Do you think you'd have gone about that differently if you'd started again now, having thought about these things philosophically? Absolutely. I was, back in the day, one of those critics who would have thought that evaluation was the lesser part of my job. I was primarily a critic of avant-garde works, and to a certain extent, we took our job to forward the cause of the avant-garde, to tell people what the point of this work was and to explain the different kind of techniques, conventions, strategies that would be used to realize those purposes. So we thought of ourselves as having an evangelical, educative task at hand. That may be the good intentions of many critics nowadays who say that evaluation is not their main task. They may think that their main task is education. But I think that education and evaluation now, at least, 
can actually go hand in hand. I'm less shy about it than I was back in those days where the fear was, you know, if you said, well, this work isn't that good, that number of readers would take that as, oh, I told you so. Oh, Carol, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more information about Aesthetics Bites, go to www.londonaestheticsforum.org. And for more information about Philosophy Bites and how to support us, go to www.philosophybites.com. Mm-hmm.